We'll be looking at Luke 6, 39 to 49, but all of verse 20 to 49 is one sermon of Jesus. So I'm going to read the whole thing as we wrap it up this morning. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. And Jesus lifted his eyes up on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will be not judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will put be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then these verses will be what we look at this morning. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Will a, dis- a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes gathered from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words. And as we examine them and look at them, would we apply them to our lives? Lord, would your spirit come and cause you to be honored and that we would grow up and that you would increase our faith? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, on December 31st, 2016, Dee Martin went to bed in South Carolina, but she awoke on January 1st, 2017 in North Carolina. Neither she nor her house had moved, but the border between North and South Carolina had changed due to more precise GPS technology. She and 18 other homes between the North Carolina and South Carolina borders now existed in the same location, but in a different state. You know, the problem was that they had for years based their border on imprecise boundary markers. But now with new and more accurate information, they could accurately put people where they should be. Now, this wasn't just a you know, fun little story. The ramifications were pretty great because for Dee Martin and her husband, they both were elderly in their late 80s needing medical care, which their former state provided, but the new state did not cover. Their change of state could have had drastic ramifications. Well, Jesus here is talking to his disciples and he's telling them that many people think that they're in a certain state with God. But in the parallel passage in Matthew 7, Jesus says that though they think they're in this one state, one day they're going to come before God and he's going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. Now, it's not that they were in a different place. They were in the place they thought all along. It's that they had misunderstood where the border was. They didn't understand where they were living. And there can be, as we see what with D. Martin, and much worse with Christ, horrible ramifications. And so Jesus here is laying out for his disciples three different criteria so that they can make sure that they are on the right path, that they can have sure footing. And so to see the path clearly, he gives three things. If you have a bulletin, you can see it on the back. First in th- verses 39 to 42, he wants to give them eyes to see. And then in verses 43 to 45, he gives them revelations of reality. And then lastly, in 46 through 49, a solid foundation. Well, we just read the verses before this, and you can see that Jesus was condemning before this self-righteousness, the attitude that looks down on others and condemns them and is judgmental. And now he's wanting to warn his disciples that they could go astray by being blind spiritual guides. God gave Israel spiritual guides, but though they were supposed to see for the nation, they were looking in the wrong place. They were blind. Rather than examining themselves and then showing others the truth of God's word, they were not looking at themselves and they're going around critiquing everyone based on their own rules. We can see that even here. If you flip back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, it says, On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Here they are, supposedly hiding in grain fields, popping up, catching Jesus and his disciples. They're watching. 
Or if you look down in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees have eyes, and they're looking around, but they're only looking around to condemn, to show people how they're out of step with their own rules. And so these are blind guides, and Jesus wants his disciples not to be blind guides. And so he gives them a parable. That's the first time we've come across a parable in the Gospels. And Jesus uses a parable to give physical comparisons of things to then make a spiritual application. Well, here he asks, can a blind person lead a blind person? And the answer is, of course, obvious. Well, no, that's impossible. And then he asks, won't they both fall into a pit? And again, the answer is obvious. Yes, they would both fall in a pit. Well, then in verse 40, he draws a connection to this, that spiritually, you can follow the wrong teacher. And if you follow the wrong teacher, then you will become like them. Now, this is a little bit hard for us to understand because you may go online and watch a teacher and then you click off. Or you may go to a place like Shepherd Air Force Base and be taught and then you leave. But in Jesus' day, a disciple would almost always go and live with their teacher. They would follow them every day. And as we are around people, we begin to pick up not just their ideas, but their lifestyle. And Jesus is saying, if you're following these blind teachers, you will become blind like them. And you will, in fact, become like your teacher. Now, the teacher could be someone else. Or in our day and age, we have to realize it could be ourselves. But the Word of God talks about that too. Proverbs 3, 5-7 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So these blind guides, these blind teachers can be others or can even be ourselves as we try to run our own life in our own way. But here Jesus is warning, you have to be careful who you are following as a teacher. Who is the one that you are going in their footsteps? And we often take this very lightly. Well, you know, when I'm looking for a church, what's important is the atmosphere. Or do they have good programs for my children? Are the people nice? Well, those are all good things. Hopefully people are nice. Hopefully they have good programs. Hopefully the atmosphere feels good. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to realize the serious importance of what they're teaching. Is what they're teaching in line with what God's word says. Because Jesus is warning we will become like our teachers. And so we have to not even dabble with false teaching or putting ourselves in a place where we're under teachers who are not teaching the truth. Now, Jesus slightly alters his analogy in verse 41 because he goes from blindness to their sight being blocked. And they think they're able to see the speck, the small sawdust in their brother's eye. However, there's something much worse in their eye. You know, the other person has a splinter. You know, you probably have gotten a splinter. Sometimes you can see them, but sometimes they're so small. All you can do is if you run your hand across it, you can feel it. But you have to get out a magnifying glass just to see it. But in contrast, rather than having a splinter that you see for them, there's a beam. Now Sarah's grandfather, he built his own log home. And as you look on the outside and inside, you can see the logs. And then inside there's support beams going across at least six inches by six inches in size. Now just imagine something six by six up against your face. 
And then you trying to look and get out the little splinter that needs a magnifying glass. And that's the picture Jesus is painting for us, that we're like that. We have these huge beams in front of us as we go around trying to point out what's wrong in everyone else. And Jesus doesn't mince any words about what he thinks about this. He says, hypocrite, first, take this massive piece of wood in front of your eye out. Take care of your own issues, your own sins first. Now, the word hypocrite is the word they use for actor. Why are we hypocrites? Well, it's because when we're acting this way, we're pretending, oh, I really care about you. There's this issue in your life that I think you should improve. But we don't really care about them. If we're having these beams in our own eyes, in front of our eyes, then really we're just wanting to go around and condemn others. We're playing a part, but we're really hypocrites because we just want to go around pointing our finger at other people. And so Jesus is wanting them first to examine themselves. But notice it doesn't stop there because he then says, remove the beam so that. So there's a purpose in doing this. So that you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye and cast it out. So many people stop at that first part. Take the beam out of your eye, which is true, and we need to apply that to our lives, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't saying, well, what you need to do is just let everyone do their own thing. Don't ever make any moral judgments. Just make sure that you only care about yourself. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, rather, first humble yourself, examine yourself, and then you will be able to look and help others. These words really couldn't be any more practical. All of us have areas in our life that need change. And we all think everyone around us has more areas in their life that need to change. And yet, here Jesus is calling us to question, who are we going to focus on first? How and why are we going to confront others? And here I think following Jesus' words calls us to think and realize and do three things. First, as is obvious, before we start pointing out everyone else's faults, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves. You know, we have issues in our own life, and in humility, we need to recognize them. And this is really applying verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. You know, rather than going around and being so shocked and astonished at how sinful everyone is out there, we should realize and be shocked at how sinful we still are in here. Thus, the starting point for dealing with sin is always looking in first and then looking up and realizing God forgives. Thus, the majority of the time, rather than going around trying to get the splinters and the specks out of other people's lives, we should forgive them, forbear them, and look more at our own beams in our eye. This is really just applying where we, Jesus began in the sermon, being poor in spirit. If we don't really start there, the rest of Jesus' sermon won't make any sense. However, we do start in the point of humility that recognizes our own sins as the greatest problem in any context, then we're on the path to living out Jesus' words. I've shared before of how once a newspaper in England posed the question, what is the problem with the world today? What is the greatest problem with the world today? And G.K. Jesterton a Christian wrote in a very simple response. He said, I am. You know, what's the greatest problem in your parenting? 
I am. What's the greatest problem in your marriage? I am. What's the greatest problem in our church? I am. What's the greatest problem in your workplace? I am. We need to first focus on ourselves and be honest that we are often the biggest problems, that our sinful hearts are the issue. And there's a real irony in Jesus' words because it's those who say, I can see, who are actually blind. And it's those who say, I'm blind, who are given sight. There's irony to what he's saying. And so part of humbling ourselves is realizing that one of sin's most blinding, devious tricks is to say, you're actually not blind. That's how we get blinded. You know, we think we have 20-20 vision for everything. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you can't see at all. You're blind to yourself. And this should help us. So when we're on the reverse and someone confronts us, rather than putting our dukes up and going, oh, you don't understand, we should be open to listening to them. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to agree with everything they say, but we should be open to hear what is there. Is there a grain of truth in what they're saying to me? But as well, since we know that sin tends to blind us, that should lead us in love to talk to others, because that's what Jesus is saying. So second, love involves humbly talking to others about their sin. Earlier, Stephanie read for us Galatians 6, and there it talked about if we see someone caught in a sin. And one of my mentors said, we're not called to be junior Holy Spirits. You, know, you don't need to be Jiminy Cricket going around being everyone's conscience for them, letting them know every time they do something wrong. That's not the point. Are they caught in a sin? And out of love, you want to go alongside them because you've humbled yourself and say, let me help you up. Let me restore you. Not coming down, pointing at them, above them, but coming alongside them as you've humbled yourself first. Well, and the third thing Jesus' words help us to realize is that God gave us relationships to serve, not to be served. Well, where does that come from? Well, think about the speck or the splinter. Who is that affecting? Well, that doesn't affect me. If you have a splinter in your hand, that doesn't hurt me at all. It hurts you. But if I love you, then I'm going to say, I'm not going to allow you to continue in your hurt. I'm going to come along and help you. You know, it's only as we care about others and put their needs first will these relationships happen. And I think this is important because often we confront people not because we're concerned about them, but because they make our lives inconvenient. Or we just don't like what they're doing. And so we want them to change because we don't like it. But love is saying, I want you to change because it's actually hurting you. You know, Paul Tripp insightfully asked, are our words and the reason we're speaking them trying to set up life as we want it for our little kingdom? Or are we speaking as an ambassador for the king of kings, wanting our loved one's life, wanting in our loved one's life what the true king wants? As I've mentioned numerous times, I taught in public school for several years, and the woman who taught next to me for a couple years was afraid, not like cowering, but in the way people are, afraid of her students. And so... What she would do is as she taught, she would look over here at this wall, and then she'd look up over all the eyes of the students, and then look at this wall. Well, it didn't take long for the students to realize she never looked at them. And so, as each day went on, more and more mischief would happen under her nose, literally, because she wasn't looking. And as you can imagine, it would just get worse and worse and louder and louder, and some days 
as I was teaching, me and my class would look at the wall separating us going, what's going on in there? Well, you can imagine what would happen then. Then all of a sudden, one day, boom, she'd blow up. I can't believe y'all are acting this way. I can't believe how rude you are. I never treated my teachers this way. Y'all are so disrespectful, so rude. And then things would calm back down for a few minutes. What's going on? Well, she wasn't acting in love for them. It was never loving to allow all this mischief to go on. She was actually allowing them to hurt themselves. It's as we love people that we confront them on what they're doing wrong. Not because it's going to make our life worse. Because we love them. We know they're making their life worse. And we know in our own lives, our sin has made our life worse. So we humble ourselves and then we come along and say, let me help you on a path that's going to give you a better life. And so Jesus shows us that we need to humble ourselves. But not only that, he gives us in verses 43 to 45, revelations of reality. And here he gives another word picture, and this time from agriculture. He notes how no good tree gives bad fruit, no bad tree gives good fruit, and then he walks through types of trees. You know, a peach tree only gives peaches. Pomegranates only give pomegranates. Persimmons only give persimmons. You know, figs, they're not going to come from thorn bushes. Grapes, they're not going to come from bushes. They're going to come from vines. And anyone in the first century would have understood this basic principle. And so then Jesus uses this to draw a spiritual conclusion. And that just like trees or vines, people bring out what is already inside of them, what is true to their nature. It's from the internal storehouse that either good comes out or bad. And thus Jesus concludes in verse 45, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now in the Bible uses the word heart. It's talking about the deepest thoughts and being of a person. And Jesus is saying, whatever is true of you at the deepest level, that will always express itself in your actions and words. And though this is obvious, it's so easily denied, even by us. Think maybe of the last argument you had, and maybe you said some really ugly things, and then what do we say afterwards? Well, I didn't really mean all those things. Well, I think Jesus is calling us to admit, maybe that's not all we meant, and maybe there's a part of us that doesn't even believe what we said, but we actually do believe those ugly things we said, or else they never would have come out. Or you may have noticed from time to time when someone famous gets in trouble, and then they apologize to society, and they say, well, I'm really sorry, but I'm just glad that my family knows that's not who I really am. And I always want to say, well, who was it then? You know, maybe that's not all of who you are. We all have conflicts and battles inside of us that sometimes we want to do good things and sometimes we don't. But we only act out of what is already inside of us. And so this is calling us, Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves and examine what is going on in our lives. Because everything we do is just revealing what is inside of us. And we need to examine ourselves before we go around and judge others. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said, The seed of every type of sin lies dormant in my heart. A couple years ago, we bought three peach trees and planted them in our yard. And peach trees have a natural defense. What they need is they need a certain number of winter hours before they'll blossom. Because in a place like Texas, it'll be the middle of February, and you'll have a 70-degree day. 
And if the tree doesn't know better, it'll go, oh, spring's here, poof, send out the blooms. But then the next day, of course, it's Texas, it'll be freezing. And then all the blossoms will die because they'll freeze. And so peach trees internally know I need this many hours of this range of temperatures before I know, oh, time to wake up. And it's different for various trees. So you don't want to plant certain peach trees here because they'll blossom too soon and they'll die every year. Or you wouldn't want to plant certain ones down south because it takes too long and they won't get the number of winter hours they need to be hardy. And yet, I think that's an apt picture of us because sin is lying dormant in our hearts. You like the peach tree, you can go and you can look and go, oh, that's a dead tree. No, nothing's ever going to come out of that. But it just hasn't had the right temperature, the right conditions yet to bring out the blossoms. And you may think, and many a person thought, I am a really calm, patient person. I never get angry. And then they have kids and they change their viewpoint of what they're like. Well, the thing to realize is, being a parent didn't make you impatient and angry. Being a parent revealed that you are impatient and angry. All you have had is the right temperature, the heat of life that has brought out the seed that was already inside of you. This is important to realize because it's not your children. It's not your spouse. It's not your sibling. It's not the flat tire. It's not the light bulb that burnt out that makes you angry and put in any other sin. Those only are the right temperature that bring up what is already inside of us. And so Jesus' words should deeply humble us because we realize, oh, there's a lot of junk inside here. And if the right temperature of life comes, there's going to be some things blossoming in my life that are quite ugly and are not honoring to Him. You're out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks, Jesus says. And so this should really cause us to realize, look, we need to pursue change at a much deeper level than we normally do. Your anger management techniques might be helpful in lowering the temperature needed in your life before you blow up. But it doesn't remove your anger. An app monitoring your internet usage may help Avoid viewing things you shouldn't. But it's not digging into why does your heart want that. And so we have to be careful with questioning. Am I masking my sin? Or am I mortifying my sin? There's going to be a big difference. Now that's not to say that you shouldn't use some of these techniques. Because you want sin to lay dormant and not be exposed. But for sin to really be rooted out, we must mortify it. And so we daily need to be confessing our sins running to the cross, and they are finding mercy and grace. It's only as we delight in the Savior, that as we have our hearts shaped and molded into Him, that we will then want to do the right thing, that from the heart will flow out words of life. <coughs> Excuse me. And one area to apply this, for many of us, is our parenting. You know, in parenting, it's easy to think, well, if what I need to do is I just need to provide all the right conditions for my children. If I can give them only good friends, if I can make sure they're only taught the right things, if I can make sure they always have a good environment, then they're going to turn out right. And yet, that's not digging into the heart. It's not realizing what is going on. All the right externals don't 
automatically create in your children's heart a love for the Lord. Ted Tripp, not to be confused with Paul Tripp, writes, Your child's needs are far more profound than his aberrant behavior. His behavior, the things he says and does, reflects his heart. If you are to really help him, you must be concerned with the attitudes of heart that drive his behavior. He then says, A change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable, it is condemnable. Why is he saying that? I mean, don't we want well-behaved children? Well, yes, but the Pharisees were very well-behaved people. But they thought, oh, we're good with God because we're well-behaved. And he's pointing us to see, look, we don't want to raise good little Pharisees who know all the right things, but whose heart is far from the Lord. We want to dig into their heart and have not just the right external action, but the right internal motivation and heart that will reveal itself for a lifetime. And so Jesus has told of the need of a seeing guide and also told us how we can know reality. And now he turns to tell them what will make a solid foundation. The last four verses, 46 through 49, a solid foundation. And this time, rather than starting with a parable, Jesus starts with a question. He asks them, well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? The word Lord just means master. And who would say you're my master if you don't do what the master says? Well, they're not really your master. And so Jesus gives a parable contrasting two different types of people. And the first, Jesus says, has three things. First, he comes to Jesus. Second, he listens to Jesus. And third, he does what Jesus says. And Jesus says, well, this man's like a home builder. What he does is he goes and he digs. And then he digs down even more until he gets to the bedrock. And there, once he's down to the solid bedrock, he builds his house on a firm foundation. And once this foundation is secure, even a flood could come against the house, but it won't budge. It won't be shaken. Well, then Jesus tells of a second man. This man does only two of the three. It's implied, first he comes to Jesus, and second he listens to him, but he doesn't do the third. He doesn't obey what Jesus says. And Jesus says, that this man is also like a home builder, but he skipped digging down. He just said, I want to get my house. So he starts building it right on top of the dirt. But when the same floodwaters come, he says the destruction of that house was great. Now it's important to note that both homes, they externally look the same. If you walked up to either house, huh, two houses, you couldn't tell a difference. Only when the waters came would you know the difference. Now, Jesus' point here is not that what we confess is unimportant. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is essential. Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is essential. But Jesus is saying the evidence that Jesus is your Lord is is in doing what he says. Now for the home builders, it was surely easier and much less costly to just build on top of the dirt. I mean, think of all the time and energy digging down and that guy's almost halfway down to this house and I'm still over here digging. And yet, Jesus is saying, it might be more costly in this life to be obeying him. It might be easier to go, you know, On these things, Jesus, 
I don't really agree. It's going to cost a lot to do what you say. So, yes, you're Lord here, but in this area, I'm not going to do it. And it's costly. But Jesus warns that when the waters come, it will reveal what our life was built upon. The seeming inconvenience and the cost of obeying him now will be worth it. And Jesus' sermon here, as we back up and kind of examine the whole thing from verse 20 to verse 49, has shown us time and time again that Jesus didn't come just to give us a cushier and happier life now. In fact, following his commands, like loving our enemies, doing goes good to those who hate us, is actually quite hard. It's actually impossible without him working in our life. And yet sadly, many today are trying to lead others to Christ with the delusion. Well, if you come to him, your life will be better now. C.S. Lewis writes, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Jesus' words are hard. And while they do bring eternal and lasting joy, following him may also include persecution, hunger, and hatred now. Jesus, though, is saying following him, even in those difficulties, is digging down to the solid foundation. You know, we may think we're the best guides for our life. I know what to do. And you know, Jesus, that command, that, what you said there, that teaching, it's just not going to fit anymore. And so, I'm not going to follow you in that area. And yet, Jesus is saying, He is the only sure and lasting guide for this life. And so, Jesus' words are forcing us to ask, do we pick and choose the commands of Jesus to follow? <coughs> now, it's tempting here to let our minds wander and think about, oh, that church, I'm not pointing at any church, that church, proverbial church out there, they're not saying everything Jesus says, or I wish so-and-so from my workplace was here, or I hope that person down the row was listening because they're picking and choosing. No. Let's do what Jesus says. First take the beam out of our own eye. Do we pick and choose? Are we seeking to return evil with good? Are we seeking to love our enemies? Are we being generous? You know, we are so prone to rationalize disobedience Oh, I've been so faithful here, so I'm kind of owed a little bit over here. I don't need to follow him in everything all the time. And yet God is demanding here that every single second of your life be a following and obeying of him. And when we're rationalizing our disobedience, we're actually saying, no, I'm a better guide for my life than you are. But that's the exact blind guide that Jesus warned about earlier. And he said, you will lead yourself into a pit. A pit of destruction. But as opposed to the blind leading the blind, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's by following Him that we know that we're on the path to God the Father. And whereas the self-righteous teachers who would only look down and condemn, Jesus came, saw all that was wrong against us, and took the condemnation on Himself. He offers mercy and grace to those who need it. And yet, sadly, we do have to realize that Jesus' words here are the exact opposite of many today. 
Even many Christians would hear what has been said and go, well, that's Pharisaism. That's legalism, talking about what we do. Isn't it all about grace? Isn't Christianity a relationship? It's not rules. Well, in many things, that's true. But Jesus is saying the way you know you have a relationship is if you follow the rules. Yes, it's a relationship. Yes, we don't just obey to obey because we're working harder to make our God be happy with us. We're obeying because of the relationship. He's saying, if you have the relationship, then you'll want to do the rules. They won't even be burdensome. And yet, don't know about you, but you've probably had many conversations like I have where people say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to do every. I don't believe everything the Bible says. I'm not going to do everything Jesus says. Now, if all someone means by that is, you know, I'm honest and I'm struggling to do all that Jesus says, but I want to. Well, that's, that's fine. That's where every person is because we're not the Savior. We're the ones who need saving. But often I'm concerned that they mean more than that. That No, I know what Jesus says and I'm actually disagreeing with him and I'm not going to do it. Well, Jesus here has pretty clear words. He's saying that's foolish and that you're on dangerous ground and the destruction will be great. Some of us here have a friend who's telling us that the youth at his church are now openly just kind of admitting, oh yeah, we sleep around, we do drugs. You know, in the past, maybe youth would have still been doing the same thing, but tried to cover it up. But now we so, oh, preach, Jesus loves you, he accepts you for how you are. It doesn't matter. Well, yes, yes, Jesus accepts us as we are, but... He commands, demands that we don't stay where we are. That we want to follow Him. And so it should burden us if there are areas in our life or in friends' lives who profess to know Christ. And they go, ah, I don't really want to do what Jesus says. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Judges. And a common refrain in the book was, is, there was no king, or we could say Lord in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As you read through the book of Judges, you'll see a father sacrifice his daughter so he can have success. You'll see the pursuit of pleasure to the neglect of faithfulness to God. You see mixing worshiping of God with other idols so that they can have a better life. And you'll see that their society degrades to even being worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, it's really no different for many in the U.S. today. Many say, oh yes, I love God. But while they want to hang on and cling to everything else. And they want to say, there is no king in my life but myself. You know, for many, God is just a divine butler. He's there to answer your prayers. He's there to make your life better. But a butler would never demand anything of you. You always make demands of the butler. And yet that is a false God. God makes demands. He says, follow me. And he will hold us accountable. One day the river of his judgment will come. And will your house stand fast? Now here the point needs to be clear. We're not saying, Jesus is not saying, well to make sure your house stands fast, you better start doing a lot of good things. No, it's always, it's been the point through the beginning to the end. It's humility, realizing I can't. But then in that, because you realize his grace, you want to obey. Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, 
But the faith that saves is never alone. It always flows out in deeds of righteousness. And so Jesus' words force us, they force me to ask hard questions. Who really is my ultimate authority? Am I trying to be my own guide? Am I following someone else? Or am I truly following Jesus? And not only what do I say, but what do my actions reveal? Now, if you're here and you're thinking, well, my actions reveal a lot of not wanting to follow God, the solution is not, okay, I'm going to go home and try harder today. Rather, it's to come to the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the solid rock to build your life upon. And then out of love to Him, trust and obey. In Him, delight that you can build your life on that rock, that He is the foundation and out of love for Him. You get to, not you have to, you get to follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask, would you root out the sin that lays sometimes not even too dormant in our hearts? Lord, would there be a deeper love for you, a deeper trust, Lord, if there are any, even myself, who are deceiving ourselves, saying, Lord, Lord, but our actions are not following you. Would you convict? Would you bring the reality of true salvation? Oh, Lord, we need you. May we daily come to you and follow you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.